Dave was smiling when he unlocked a second-hand record store, the Vinyl Cafe, on Tuesday morning of last week, glowing even. On Monday night, just as he was closing, a man had struggled into the store backwards, lugging a carton of records he wanted to sell. They'd gone through the carton together, Dave and this man, mostly it was pretty ordinary stuff, until the box was nearly empty, and there, lying at the bottom among the scraps of paper and dog hairs and assorted detritus, there in the bottom of the carton, Dave had found a cassette copy of Live at PS 122 by the Czechoslovakian experimental group Pulnok. <laughs> As Dave picked up the cassette, he swore he could hear the thrumming of heavenly harps. He turned the tape over in his hand, he smiled, and he thought to himself, this is one of those rare moments when you know that life is worth living. Many of you will be familiar with Dave Morley, their two kids, and their friends and neighbors in the fictional world of the Vinyl Cafe, the long-running CBC radio show which aired from 1994 to 2016. Hosted by the late Stuart McLean, there are few modern radio programs in the storytelling genre that have resonated with audiences like the Vinyl Cafe. For the first time, the show's longtime producer, Jess Milton, is sharing behind-the-scenes stories from her 15 years working on and touring with the show. She joins us on this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, to talk about Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe, her new podcast produced with the Apostrophe Podcast Company, diving in to the making of the legendary radio show. Hi, I'm Jess Milton. I'm the producer and I guess now host of Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. I don't, I can't tell you how I, well, I can tell you exactly how I got into radio. It was a fluke, but I can't tell you how I got into broadcasting. I went to school for broadcast journalism, but I didn't, I wasn't interested in radio. I was, I think I originally wanted to be an actor, which when I think of it now is crazy because I am not a performer, but I did grow up, you know, doing school plays and stuff, but I also, I, I grew up singing in a choir that toured uh, across Canada, which is funny considering <laughs> that's what I ended up doing too, uh, across Canada and, and Europe. And I sang in, um, I sang opera. I was in a, an opera chorus as a kid. And so I guess the stage was a familiar and, um, fun place for me. I was, I spent so, so much of my early years backstage and, and then of course, um, so much of my career backstage, but it is not what I wanted to do. I didn't go to broadcast journalism school to end up, um, you know, producing the Vinyl Cafe because that's a pretty niche thing to do. I went to broadcast journalism school to be, I was interested in becoming a reporter. I was really interested in local journalism because I have long believed that the everyday is where the magic happens. Uh, so I, I was interested in local journalism and I was interested in television. But I took a, I took a, a broadcast journalism class in radio. I took a few. And one of my teachers was Stuart McLean. I had him as a teacher. And if Stuart were here, he would jump right in right now to tell you that he, I was not his favorite student. <laughs> I was, uh, uh, he was looking for some help on the Vinyl Cafe. The show had been on for about five or six years. And uh, it was just it was just Stuart and David Amer, the founding producer of the show, an incredible producer. 
David and Stuart had started the show as a summer replacement program on CBC. It aired, um, I think, 10 weeks in the summer of 94 and in the summer of 95. And then they did two episodes in 96 and two episodes in 97. And I met Stuart in 2002, I guess. So it had been on, it really had only been on CBC radio at Sundays at noon for four years. So it was just starting to... Um, you know, it, it certainly had, had become popular, but it was starting to become more popular. And I like to joke that I owe that first job on the Vinyl Cafe and therefore my entire career to one single overflowing email inbox because email had been invented and the show was gaining popularity and David and Stuart were just kind of like, what do we do? Like, there's too many emails. How can we possibly read them all? And so uh, Stuart approached some students to see if they would be interested in uh, working on the show. And I was not his first choice. I was, <laughs> he, there was another, another person that he approached first, but they turned him down. And so he uh, had to go on to choice number two, which was me. And he, I met with him and David Amer and they offered me a, uh, my very first job uh, on the Vinyl Cafe, which was just very part-time. I think it was, was either two or three days a week, I think even six hours a day. So not that many hours. And I had a few other jobs at the time. I worked all the way through. I went to Ryerson for broadcast journalism, and I I worked all through university at the SCORE sports television station, which is an amazing story for another time because it was a uh, very awesome place to get your start in in broadcasting in, I guess it would have been 1999, my first job. And the way I like to describe the SCORE in those days, there probably wasn't anyone over the age of 35 working there. Like we were all super young and just starting out. And it was kind of like a, a startup. And I worked 6 p.m. I was a uh, assistant program assistant. <laughs> Talk about first step on the, on the ladder. Assistant program assistant or production assistant, APA. And uh, uh, I worked 6 p.m. till about 4 a.m., about four nights a week to put myself through university. I had that job and I, I kept that job all the way through university. So Stuart approached me about this job on the Vinyl Cafe, approached me as his second choice. And I was already working at the score and I was doing an internship on the national. And then I also bartended two nights a week. And so he approached me with this job and it just sounded um, bizarre. Like it was, <laughs> it was working with these two guys that like seemingly didn't do any work at all. I remember the first story meeting I went to, it was like in Stuart's house in his living room and we just kind of like sat around like chatting and listening to music for three hours and then like kind of put a show together but that didn't even really seem like the main point anyway I took the job because I was like I just liked hanging out with Stuart and David and um, I had the flexibility to be able to work very part-time with them because I had these other jobs and so I could afford it and it seemed like the path not traveled, which is right up my alley. I like to do things just like maybe slightly differently. I always thought I would intern on the national and then, you know, go and do, go out to Regina or something and work as a reporter out there and then move to, you know, Calgary or Vancouver and then kind of take that route. But um, this was a, this was a path that had not been trodden. And uh, I always like those paths. I like to get lost in the woods. And so off I went to get lost in the woods, lost in the world of the Vinyl Cafe. And uh, I started part-time on the show a couple days a week, I guess within about, I don't know, maybe a year or something. Um, they brought me on full-time. The show was really starting to take off. We were doing more and more live concerts every year. And then in 2000 and 
five or six, David Amer retired and uh, handed me the reins as producer. And uh, I was a producer of the show for over a decade until we wound it, uh, well, until, until Stuart died. The Vinyl Cafe, to many CBC and public radio listeners in the U.S. and the U.K., has reached this iconic status. But for those who might not be completely familiar with the show, do you want to talk a little bit about it and this fictional world that Stuart McLean created? You know, it's a, uh, <laughs> it's funny. It's, it's probably really bizarre. Like if someone was coming up with the, the show idea now, I'm not sure how they'd pitch it, you know, like it was, it was kind of, uh, it was just, um, it was this world. It was a world that um, Stuart created in his imagination. So the, the, the heart of the Vinyl Cafe are these fictional stories uh, written by Stuart McLean about fictional characters named a guy named Dave with no last name. And Dave is the owner of a of what he proudly refers to as the world's smallest record store. And his wife is Morley and their two kids are Sam and Stephanie. And basically the show, the heart of the, the heartbeat of the show were these fictional stories. So it, when, when Stuart uh, and David Amer created the show, it had a bit of a different conceit. The, the conceit was that Stuart was, you know, Stuart McLean, a real guy, and that he would pop into a used record store called the Vinyl Cafe. And he would, you know, when he was there, he would have learned about, you know, here's this song by Ry Cooter. So it was basically a music show. David Amer was um, a legendary producer at CBC, incredible guy. I learned so much from him. He knows so much about music. And he and Stuart worked together on Morningside with Peter Zosky. David Emmer was the music producer on that show, and Stuart loved music, and and so they wanted to do a music show together, and they came up with this idea that this is funny actually, and a, a good reminder for people out there who might be creating their own shows. They Stuart and David did a they created a pilot called the Vinyl Cafe, and I think it was maybe in '94 or something, and they handed it in to management at CBC, and the the program director at the time listened to it, loved it. And then did nothing with it. The, the pilot, I've heard the pilot. It's um, I have it somewhere. You know, it sat on that person's shelf for five years. Nothing happened. And they did like it. It's not like they turned it down. They liked it, but they just didn't have the right spot for it. And eventually they gave it this um, summer replacement, you know, 10 weeks in the summer. So when they, when David and Stuart went back to revisit the pilot, the original conceit of like, you know, Stuart stopping by and talking to his friend Dave, it felt maybe a bit too cute. And so they changed it slightly where they mostly would play music and Stuart would tell some stories about this guy, Dave, who owned a record store. And that's really the show for the first like two or three seasons. Dave was a minor character. Like he wasn't, he didn't even appear in every, in every episode. But by the time the show kind of became, you know, sort of by the time I was on board, Dave and Morley were the beating heart of the Vinyl Cafe and their world was our world. And these Dave and Morley stories were about Dave and the antics that he would get into. Dave, his heart is always in the right place, but <laughs> his head and his feet don't always follow, uh, don't always lead him in the right direction. So he's he's always trying to do good, but he almost always messes up trying to do good. And the good he's trying to do or the, the good he's trying to create is almost always to please Morley because he loves his wife Morley more than anything and he wants her to be happy. 
the radio show, you know, there was a David Marley story in most episodes of the show, but we also, um, most of our shows, not all of them, but most of them were recorded live across Canada. So Stuart and I would fly into a town or drive into a town maybe five or six days before we recorded, and we would come armed with a binder full of research uh, ready to write. We'd say we were recording in Tofino, British Columbia. You know, we'd arrive maybe five or six days before the show, having read the local newspaper for several weeks or months, having come armed with some research by our amazing uh, associate producer, Louise Curtis, who would have interviewed dozens of people about the town. We generally have a sense of what we wanted to write about, but it would almost always change. Each day we'd kind of hit the ground running. He'd go one way and I'd go another. And we'd basically, we'd be reporters. You know, we'd hang out in coffee shops and listen to what people were talking about and then approach them at their table and explain who we were. And I almost always started with the question, what do you want people to know about this place that you live? And we heard the most amazing stories. And we would gather every night. Um, you know, I'd usually rent us a little house or apartment or sometimes just two hotel rooms. And we'd gather in his hotel room or mine, or we'd gather in the kitchen of the apartment that I rented. And we'd start telling each other stories about what we learned about the place where we were recording. And usually a story would just sort of emerge, you know, it would start, it would present itself to us. And then we'd write it and we'd work on it a little bit more. And We'd rent a theater, um, so we would arrive, um, say it was in Tofino, we'd have the little Claycott Sound um, community theater, we'd perform the show live, it would start with an essay about the place that we were in that we had sort of um, researched and written together, and then we'd have a local musician perform songs, and there'd also be David Morley stories. So it was a mix of Strong Sense of Place, essays about the the towns across Canada that we were recording in, music, usually generally local, everything from people you haven't heard of to people you have heard of, and uh, stories about this fictional family and this fictional record store. The Vinyl Cafe seems to resonate with people at a level that very few public radio shows have been able to achieve. Do you want to talk about how the show would resonate with people when you were on the road. It makes me very happy. You know, one of the things I loved, and I know this made Stuart really happy too, was when people would tell us about how they listened. So, so many people listen to the show with members of their family. So, you know, probably my favorite thing was when um, our, our Uh, On CBC Radio, the show used to air Sundays at noon. So people would say, you know, they'd write us these letters and say, like, I live in Mabu, Cape Breton, and my mom lives in, you know, Red Deer, Alberta, and I listen at noon, and then I wait a few hours, and she listens at noon, and then we call each other afterwards and talk about the show. It's – I don't know what it – you know, I – I don't know what it was about the show that brought people together, but it did do that. It brought people together. And uh, the very first episode of the podcast, I have two little girls now. I have a three-year-old, Annabelle, and a five-year-old, Eloise. And Eloise is, I think she's too young for the Vinyl Cafe. Stuart used to say eight was the age that where people could enter our world and be able to understand it. But she is my daughter, and she she did listen to a tremendous amount of Vinyl Cafe in, in utero, so I thought she might be able to handle it. So the first episode of the podcast, I was listening to it on my phone, and she said, what is that? And I said, it's Stuart. You know, she's, of course, she's heard all about him. She never got a chance to meet him. And she took my phone, and she laid on the couch listening to Dave on the bike, and I saw her escape 
I saw her transport herself into a different place. It's not a long story, so she could handle it. It's maybe 16 minutes or something. And she listened to the entire thing staring at my phone. And I got to experience what so many other parents and families got to experience, which is it brought us together. You know, we laughed together and we kind of, uh, there were little moments that she kind of recognized. There's a couple of jokes that she got and I got to experience it with her the way other people had said, had told me they experienced it with their kids or with their parents. And uh, I got it from a t- <laughs> from a totally different perspective. It was really nice. As you mentioned, Stuart sadly passed away in 2017. But can you talk about keeping the show alive online and how the new podcast came about? You know, it's funny, like, we didn't really know what would happen. We knew that there would be people still, you know, hey, we released our story. Those Vinyl Cafe stories, those David Morley stories were released in books and CDs. So we we knew there are lots of people who still connect to the show. And we have a very active community online on Facebook in particular and Instagram. And so I knew there were people who still connected to the show and liked the, that world. But I guess 2022... It just felt it was a very difficult for me year for me personally, and I, I know I'm not alone. There were just a lot of people who really had a hard time last year, and I, I started going back to some of those old stories. Like there, there'd be a reason. Like it's not like I went, you know, it's not like I was like I need my dose of Dave and Morley. Although I really should have thought like that. Um, you know, there'd be some reason someone would write me and say, "Hey, what's the you know what's the story where this happened?" And I, you know, pull, take out one of the books or pull out one of the CDs and listen to the story. And every time I did that, I just just felt like I was that feeling on a, it's really cold here today where I live. And um, you know, that feeling when it's freezing and you're out for, I have a dog, so I have to walk her <laughs> even if it's minus 31. So I'm out walking her. And this morning I, I did this, I went out um, for a walk. It was beautiful, sunny, but it was very cold. And when I got home, I entered, you know, opened the door of my house and I entered and it was like, warm and cozy and I just literally came in from the cold that's what it felt like to me when I went back to revisit some of these stories it just felt like spending time with old friends and it was also like I just I hadn't laughed like that in a long time you know I just I had a I had fun and um and so I thought well if I feel this way there must be other people that do that feel this way too and so we thought okay let's let's see and I, when I sat down to start putting the shows together it was not my intention. The podcast was not going to be called Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. It was going to be called the Vinyl Cafe. I was just gonna, I was just gonna be kind of a conduit. I wasn't. I was just gonna, you know, introduce two stories and around a central theme. But when I started listening to the stories, all these memories started flooding back. Some of them pretty funny and fun and about life on the road. And I just kind of started putting some words down on paper. And when I started sharing them with people, I was surprised to hear that. They liked them. And so um, the show kind of took a bit of a different direction. And and like so many things, like my early days on the show, it wasn't planned, right? It was really organic. It just sort of, it's funny, I'm such a planner, most producers are. But when I look back on my life, the things that are most, the best things in my life were not planned. And uh, this that's how the show came together. I sat down to just start, you know, figuring out what are two stories that's linked around a central theme? And and as I started to do that, all these other stories started coming to me. And uh, it seems to be what people are interested in. So, yeah, it's nice. How did the conversation begin with Terry O'Reilly and his apostrophe podcast company? And are there any intellectual property challenges here with CBC? 
So Terry and I first met, I think around the same time that Terry and Stuart first met. So I've known Terry for years and consider him a friend because um, when he first started his radio show, he he asked Stuart for some advice on on, on the show, but all, mostly specifically on touring. And uh, Stuart was like, well, <laughs> Stuart's a genius and a really you know, he wrote all these stories that everyone loves, but the other, pretty much the everything else, like he didn't have a lot to do with the, the other behind the scenes stuff. And so he's like, well, you really want to talk to Jess about like the logistics of all of this. And so we all got together at Stuart's house in Ken- Kensington Market and had a conversation about touring. And he's just, I mean, Terry such he's just smart and funny and warm and personable. And we just, uh, the three of us really clicked. And I would run into Terry over the years, you know, sometimes at CBC in the halls or, you know, on various, I worked with the Walrus magazine and produced a tour for them and Terry was on the tour. And and so when I first started thinking about putting out a podcast, I reached out to him for some advice, uh, the same way he had reached out to us for advice. And he was so generous with his time and, you know, started teaching me how to do it. And then when it came time where I felt ready, he said, well, should we do it together? And that felt good. So yeah. And in terms of IP, Stuart and I produced the show independently. It, so he he owned the show. Uh, he and, So the short answer to your question is no. Can we talk about the breadth of material available from all those years of live performances? And after producing the show for radio and, and live performance for so many years, your approach now to producing backstage at the Vinyl Cafe? Yeah, it's really, that's a great question, Connie, because it's the biggest challenge for me is, you know, we've recorded a few, like the first half of sort of season one. And to be honest, the, the challenge for me is I didn't see myself as a host, like the audience. I mean, gosh, how, like how am I like 20, <laughs> 20 years into my career still learning the same thing over and over? So we learned, I, I think the, I love audiences. I love feedback. And we were very lucky that most of our shows were recorded live in front of an audience and we used them to their full extent, meaning we use them as an editor. I would sit in the wings every single night and mark up the script to learn from the audience. And, you know, Stuart and I would rewrite things based on the audience reaction because so often the audience is smarter. They were ahead of us. Like sometimes we, sometimes we didn't even know things were funny and the audience had to teach us that it was funny and then we'd have to rewrite it to make it funnier. So in this case, I kind of just saw myself as like, all right, I'm just like, I wanted to get out of the way. You know, I just wanted to, Stuart's stories and his read and everything were just so incredible. I just wanted to get out of the way of it. And I was just going to throw to the stories and get out of the way. But the feedback has been, I guess the audience sees me differently than I see myself. So that's been a a bit of a shift and I'm going to have to do some work on that front. It's been an interesting shift. The way it's put together, I mean, so Stuart wrote there are almost 200 David Morley stories. So yes, I've got a lot to work with. And I also, of course, have 15 years of like touring and working with Stuart and traveling with Stuart. He was also my best friend. So we spent an inordinate amount of time together. I used to joke, like all good jokes, this is, comes from a place of truth. I used to have a joke that I spent more nights a year with Stuart than I did with my husband. <laughs> but it wasn't, you know, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> like I would be... You know, I'd be out living on a tour bus for about 150 or 200 days a year and only home for whatever's left, you know, 150. So, yeah, we spend an inordinate amount of time. So believe me, I could go on for years with backstories from the Vital Cafe because it was everything to me for 15 years. 
so yeah, I got a lot to work with both from the David Morley stories, but also from the, uh, the backstories, the memories. I completely agree with the feedback that you're getting because I love the little anecdotes in between mm. the two stories that are featured in every episode. You addressed in the latest episode that Dave is not based on Stuart. Are there any other yeah. sort of urban myths or lore around the show that you'll be lifting the veil on? Huh. That's a great question. And th- and th- and I should say thank you for that for that feedback on the backstories. It's a it's a shift for me, you know. Um, I almost feel like people are disappointed to hear that, that Dave wasn't Stuart and Stuart wasn't Dave. I guess the other surprising thing is, and I can't remember if I mentioned it in that podcast or not. I think I did, but didn't go into it in any detail. Stuart was really more most closely aligned with Sam. So that his by far his favorite character to write was Sam. And especially as the show went on, I think it was a bit of a way, I mean, if, he, if Stuart were here, by the way, he'd be rolling his eyes at this. Anyway, I'll tell you where I was going to go with this. He, he'd be rolling his eyes at what I'm about to say, but I know that I'm right. I think it was a bit of a way for him to process some stuff. Sam was a bit of a way to do that. So the first, the first thing is Sam and Stuart see the world uh, in exactly the same way, like full of possibility, right? But they also, Sam is an interesting character because he's so hopeful and so optimistic as was Stuart. But he, he kind of doesn't always know how to go about it. Yeah, he just doesn't necessarily know how the world works, which is what makes him such an interesting character to write, I think. And Stuart was a bit like that. He would sometimes say things like, oh, are, are you allowed to do that? And I know what he meant because he his instincts were slightly different than others, which is what made him so awesome and interesting. You know, he would he would leap into action and and kind of want to help whenever he could, but not necessarily know exactly how to do it. So yeah, I would say the biggest surprise on that front is Stuart is not Dave, but not only is he not Dave, he's probably most closely aligned with Dave's son, Sam, and in a variety of ways. So that optimism for sure. But also I think it was a bit of a way for him to um, relive or work, work through some of the stuff from his own childhood years. You know, that's why you see, like a lot of those stories go, a lot of the Sam stories, Sam goes back to Cape Breton, which was, it's a little bit like going back in time, right? And so there's stuff that Sam could be doing in Cape Breton. You know, Macaulay's Mountain is a version of this where they go back and they, he and his friend Murphy go back to Cape Breton and have a summer with Dave's mom, Margaret, and they find this old car. And that is a story that takes place in modern time, but because it takes place in rural Cape Breton, it could be could be Stuart's childhood too. It easily could have taken place in the 60s. What's the strangest question that you you get asked by (laughs) hardcore fans of the show? (laughs) What a great question. Well, for sure, I don't think it's strange, but the one that you just talked about about is Dave Stewart. That one for sure is uh, that we used to get asked that a lot. And I think (laughs) I have a theory that I think people want Stuart, they wanted Stuart to be Dave. Um, so the, I always felt a little disappointed to give them the truth, which is no. I think people used to also ask us a lot, you know, ask Stuart, where do you get your ideas from? And not that that's strange. That's a really normal question. But the ideas, you know, not to say they were easy, but they were doing the work. Like there's so many questions I wish they asked, you know, like like so I, I alluded to him being a hard worker. He was incredibly hardworking, very diligent. And people wanted to know about the genesis of the ideas, but they never asked about like, what's your process, you know? And so many of your listeners, I listen to your show and that's the part that I'm, I listen to this podcast and that's the part I'm always interested in because when you're a creator, 
everyone's process is different, but I love learning about that kind of thing because the way other people do things, I might be able to tweak my own process and my own creative process to improve on it, right? Or technical process. So his his was, um, I guess when you could always tell like the writers in the room, we, we did a Q&A at almost every other, every show. And by the way, we loved them. Stuart and I loved them. It, we would He would always bring me out on stage and we would take questions from the audience. We loved them because they were totally unpredictable, like wildly unpredictable. And uh, you know, that's just that's fun. Like a show without those unpredictable moments is just a movie, you know. So we loved those moments um, where we t- got to talk to the audience. But every everybody else hated them because <laughs> because they were so unpredictable, and because they like it would always go off the rails, you know. Stuart would they would go on way too long. And anyway, so every once in a while, you could tell when it was really a writer because they would ask about. So this is, I guess, maybe the weirdest question is they would ask about things like word count and what his process was about writing. And he would start with a conversation with Meg Masters, his editor. They'd kind of hash out the story and then he'd start writing. And he'd write 500 words a day when he was writing. It would usually take him about three weeks to write a David Morley story. He'd write 500 words a day, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you're staring at a blank page, those first 500 words are hard. And then the next day, day two, he'd he'd write through. That was what he called. He'd write through his 500 words and be just messing with it, you know, tweaking it over and over. And then he'd write 500 more. And then on day three, he'd write through day one and day two. So he'd write through a thousand words and then he'd write 500 more. And the stories were always extremely long by the end, like 7,500 words or something. And a final story would be maybe 3,000 words. But that was his process. And um, I loved when the audience asked questions about things like that. But that, that, that was weird. And probably there was like two people in the audience who were interested and, you know, 2,200 who <laughs> who weren't. But those kinds of questions, um, for me anyway, were the most interesting. I noticed on the Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe site, there are very clear instructions on how yeah. to listen to a podcast. Are there longtime <laughs> CBC listeners rediscovering the show digitally that maybe are, are not the same people who seek out podcasts? Absolutely. So we were really conscious. Of, look, listen, we, we had a podcast back in the day when we were on CBC Radio. We had a podcast for years, for 12 years or something. We were very, very early into the podcasting game. In fact, I, I think, I'm not sure about this. I know that I kind of petitioned to make our show available by podcast. I don't know if we were the first or not, but we were very early, we were in the very early days and we were on for years. So we had a dedicated podcast audience, but we also had people who had never podcast the show before. And so when we decided to do this, I know our audience, like I, I love them. You know, they're, they feel like family to me. There are people that I would see at these shows because we would go to the same places every year on tour. I, I watched their kids grow up, you know, like I would see the, I always um, was out in the lobby at the table where we had books and CDs and stuff. And I got to see the same people. I became friends with them. I have pictures of, you know, their kids growing up and stuff. And so I knew that there would be some people that had never podcasted before. And I also knew that they could do it. And that they would love it. You know, my own mother-in-law, we bought her an iPad a few years ago. She's an avid, avid CBC listener, public radio listener. But there are just like the world of podcasting is so incredible. And she's, a, she's like a voracious reader. She's an intellect. She's really smart. And, and so we bought her this iPad and introduced her to podcasting a few years ago. And now it's like 
But what, like, I mean, she's also retired, so she has, like, all this time, you know. And, I mean, she listens to, like, 10 podcasts a day or something. She's just become this, like, this consumer of podcasts. She can't get enough. And so I knew that there would be, it would be new for a lot of people, but I also knew that they could do it. And it wouldn't just open their eyes to our show. It would open, like, a whole new world to them. And I was excited about that. And I got lucky because it you know, this all kind of came together over Christmas. And my father, who's 74, was here. He had never podcasted before. He'd never, like, he'd heard of it, I guess. But he, he, and he's really, he still works. He's a journalist, but he does not podcast. And so I recorded all these videos with him where I taught him how to do it. And they were not staged. Like, it was just me and my dad (laughs) in my kitchen being like, okay, dad, you see that purple icon? No, not that purple. No, that one right there, the one that says podcast, click on that. And uh, yeah, we just, I just taught him how to do it and recorded it as I was teaching him how to do it on all different devices because they're all a little bit different, right? And it's been great. And just as we knew they would, there are people who've never done this before and they tried it, which I love them for. And, uh, you know, they, they sent us great little notes like, oh, that wasn't too hard. Thanks so much. So yeah, I think there'll be, um, I, I hope that the podcast um, that we we get our existing fans who I care so much about, but also that that we introduce them to not just our show, but a whole other a world of podcasts that they can explore and discover. And also, I hope that there are some podcast listeners out there who maybe never listen to the Vinyl Cafe on the radio who will find us on podcasts. Is there a thought you want to close on, Jess? The question that I'm left with is, after studying under the master, do <laughs> you have thoughts on the craft of this kind of storytelling And whether a show like The Vinyl Cafe can be reproduced in some manner, have you thought yourself about, you know, taking a crack at a storytelling-focused show? I got butterflies when you said that um, because it makes me nervous. You know, I am am not Stuart McLean. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this show, um, I sort of feel like, I told you it, it like came, like it came to be in a very organic way, and that um, you, despite the fact that I <laughs> obsessively plan like every minute of my life, um, and like a true producer, like you know, like have it timed out to the second. Like my kids for daycare drop off, it's like it's eight thirty one. We're going to be leaving the house in forty five seconds, thirty five seconds, twenty five seconds. You know, despite all of that, my favorite things in life kind of just um, have been given the space and time to sort of. Um, reveal themselves to me. And that's what I hope will happen with the show. I I guess the truth is, I don't know. That excites me to think about, but I'm not there quite yet. I don't know if I ever will be. I think we'll just have to see. You know, I also told you that I really listened to, I've been blessed um, to inherit through Stuart great audiences over the years. And I've really, I've learned so much from the Vinyl Cafe audience, and I think they'll be my guide. They always have been. I think I hope they will be in, moving forward too. So I, don't know. I guess we'll have to see what happens. I don't know about you, but downstream and you know organic, I think are a very post-pandemic state of being. <laughs> I think you're right. I also think it's for me personally, it's um, it comes with age. Like I used to um will things into existence. And I still do that a little bit, but I think the combination of, yeah, the turbulent times that we've been living in the pandemic and also 
<laughs> uh, living with two small, strong-willed children, I, I think I've had to recognize I can't always do that and that I need to just sort of be patient and, and wait for things to, not necessarily wait for things to happen because I, I certainly am the kind of person who makes things happen. But I, I think, yeah, patience and like, um, you know, one of, the, one of the main things I learned from Stuart it's a, it's an incredibly valuable lesson, both as a as a creator, as a producer, as a writer, but just as a human being. He was, um, you know, everyone talks about how good of a storyteller he was, and God, he was he was the best, right? Like he's he's a legend, but he was a great storyteller because he was an incredibly good listener. He was an observer. He watched and he waited and he he was patient, but he also um, he was quiet and. I am not. <laughs> and I I had to learn that from him. Like I learned that from him through as a reporter. You know, I was always quick. We'd go out. I told you about going out and interviewing people. And I, I'd be quick to fill the air, you know, like um, if they didn't have something to say I'd, initially when I was young, I would, I would say something to make them feel better. And he, he taught me to just be patient and wait and to really listen. And the good answers always come when you're waiting patiently and not trying to fill in that space. And I think, you know, I think about him, this conversation, um, some of the questions you're asking made me think about how much I've learned from him because um, that's not in my nature. And yet I've learned that from him. So yeah, I think, I think just like him, I'll um, pay attention, close attention, and I will watch and wait and I'll pay attention to how the audience is feeling about things. But also, you know, Stuart and I used to have this phrase when we were planning things or coming up with ideas or making big decisions, he'd say, what does your tummy tell you? Not your brain, but not even your heart, right? Like your tummy, like almost like you feel it deep down inside of you. And uh, that's how I move through life with him to saying to me, what does your tummy tell you? I, th- I still think that all the time. So yeah, I'll see what my tummy tells me. Thanks so much for sharing your stories with us, Jess. Thanks so much for asking. Thanks for so much for asking such great questions too. You, um, you, are very good at listening and waiting. And it's it's a pleasure to talk to someone like that. So thank you. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.